Hey, this is Greg Sanders. Thanks for listening today. It's our hope that this message will help you connect to God, grow in His Word, and serve the kingdom in a greater capacity. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Uh, as you guys give, I'm just going to go ahead and recap a couple of things that have happened. Uh, how many of you guys have your 40 days of communion? Hasn't it been awesome to be doing communion with your families each night? I know that on Wednesday nights, uh, our Velocity students have been doing communion uh, together as a, as a ministry, and it's been a wonderful blessing uh, even just doing that with our kids. We're having more, like we Let's be real. We, we have spiritual conversations with our kids, but the depth of the conversations that we've been having with our kids since we've been doing this has been on another level. So if you are not doing the 40 days of communion, or if you don't have one of these books to help you get started, out in the lobby, uh, on your way out the door, grab one. They're totally free. And uh, if you missed the first couple of weeks, just tack it on at the very, very end. It would totally be all right. This week uh, is has got a, a couple of wonderful treats that are in it, and, and I'm super excited about what God's doing, not just in our family, but in our church, uh, with the, the passion and the fervor that you guys are developing as you spend time with them together, putting God first and the center of your family. Well, as we get into our sermon today, um, I'm going to begin it in kind of a, an odd way, with a confession, Okay. I have ADHD. I know. It's shocking. I know you're totally surprised by the news that I have ADHD, and it's like probably the, one of the most surprising ways you've ever heard somebody open a sermon before, and you just thought that this was a sermon, but actually it's a therapy session, okay? Not my therapy session, but yours. So how does that make you feel? I'm just kidding. So I have ADHD, it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder, for those of you guys who aren't familiar with it, but I'm sure that probably most, if not all of you are. Um, before, when I was younger, it used to just be called like, there was ADD and then there was ADHD, right? So there was the Attention Deficit Disorder, and then there was those that were special, <laughs> who got the H label, the hyperactive label. Like, I feel like I had earned that H all right? And now they just throw it into the diagnosis. It's like whenever you take your kid to the doctor to get shots, and at the end of it, they're like, oh, it's okay. We're going to give you a sticker or a sucker to make it all worth your while. So they diagnosed me with ADD, and now they just throw in the H to everybody. Everybody gets it like it's a free popsicle or something. And it's kind of, kind of upsetting because I, like, I feel like I'm on another level with that H. Now we're all the same. Now that I'm done with that little rabbit trail, let's jump onto the main road here. Um, so I have ADHD, and something um, that I like to think about my ADHD or a different way of looking at it is if I've got a couple of tasks that are important, that need to get accomplished, and there are like four or five other tasks that sound uh, more enjoyable, I'm going to do the more enjoyable ones first. And then I'm going to, at the very end, procrastinate and get the, the two most important things done with whatever time I've got left, uh, just because uh, it, it seems more fun and more enjoyable, and I'm a little bit more impulsive uh, that way. And I, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you as well. I think whenever we look at uh, our families, uh, how many of you guys grew up and when you were in school, your parents let you stay home all summer? Yeah? Am I the only one? 
Am I the only one who got to stay home all summer long by myself? Okay, now, whew. I was, I was getting a little worried. Like, I thought that this was a normal thing. So uh, when I was in middle school and junior high, my mom used to let my sister and I, uh, which she also has ADHD, again, rabbit trails, um, we, we'd stay home during the summer while we worked. And we didn't have a car, but we were responsible enough to not burn down the house, at least so she thought. I mean, I literally did light the carpet on fire uh, one day. And she knows it's not a surprise to her that that, that was the case. But each day, she would give us a list of chores that we had to do, and she'd always say, now these have to be done by the time that I get home, right? Because she wanted us to be responsible all summer, plus she needed our help to make sure that the house wasn't falling apart and uh, that there wasn't a mountain of clothes and dishes that she had to do. Like, we were, we were capable enough, at least she thought that we were, and uh, there was... One particular uh, day that, uh, here, let me backtrack just a little bit more. Again, ADHD. So uh, each day when my mom would dole out our chores, my sister and I, we would do like a little arm wrestle or a thumb wrestle to see who would do what chores. Like you win, you get to choose, you know, out of the list, and then whoever loses has to do the rest. And some days, depending on who it is that would win, I'd be like, we're doing none, and you're doing all of them. Like, it's just the way that it was. And I know what you're thinking. It's like, Addison, that's your sister. Like, you're a guy. Of course, you're a really fit and physically strong and able-bodied guy. Like, you're going to smoke your sister every time in an arm wrestle. Like, I've seen your calves. I know you work out. I know you're strong. Well, this is what I looked like when I was in middle school and junior high. <laughs> that dude there was not beating his sister in a foot race, let alone in an arm wrestle. All right, which is why we added in the thumb wrestles, because at least the thumb wrestle, I had a fighting chance. All right. So, to be fair, um, I was pretty athletic. I know that this, this nerd that's on the screen looks far from athletic. All right, I was pretty athletic. And my sister, she's like this athletic phenom. Uh, brag time for my sister. She, um, she did basketball. She did softball. She did volleyball in high school. And like made all conference in all of them. Like she was really good. Not only that, she's literally in the Arkansas Softball Hall of Fame. Like, so my sister's a beast, all right? So, you know, cut me a little bit slack that I couldn't beat my sister in a foot race until I was 21 and she was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, all right? So cut me a little bit slack. So, I guess I need to get back on a regularly scheduled program. <laughs> so my sister and I, we would arm wrestle to decide who had to do what chores, um, but we did what every kid who stays home does. We you know, sleep in, we'd watch The Price is Right, we'd watch like, you know, whatever cartoons we could throughout the day, we'd do indoor baseball in the hallway, uh, we'd, uh, you know, go out into the yard and play basketball in the driveway, we'd pull pranks on each other, like we, we did everything that we could possibly do to delay the inevitable, and that was that we had to do our chores, all right, and we'd procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate, and we did Something along these lines right here. Watch this video. Mazel! 
So every day sometime around 4.30, that's what ensued for us. It was chaos, but we were getting our chores done because what we didn't want to have happen was for our mom to come home and for the chores to not be done. And I know that you're looking at the title of this sermon and you're saying, Addison, what in the world does this have to do with repentance or with redemption? Uh, just stick, stick with me because I promise there's a point. All right, so our procrastination was an art. And what our procrastination allowed us to do was uh, be ADHD throughout the day. And with that ADHD, there was some impulsivity. We would oftentimes act before we think. All right? We didn't think about the consequences of our actions. Hence, we played baseball inside. Like, let's be real. Something is going to break. All right? And when something inevitably did break because we were destructive... All right, uh, Justine and I, we, we would do whatever it is that we could do to cover it up. We didn't want our mom to find out. So if a plate broke, we'd just toss it in the trash. And, you know, we had enough plates that uh, my mom wasn't really keeping track. Our glasses, I think she started to figure out whenever we were starting to, you know, come down to three or two or, you know, one single glass that, you know, something was going on. It wasn't at all that we were bowling in the kitchen and using the glasses to do that at all. All right. So one day, uh, we had a wasp inside the house, and uh, we grabbed a broom, and we started swatting at it, all right? I mean, we, Justine and I, we're, we're just, ter- like, I don't do flying bugs. Give me spiders all day long. Give me a centipede or ants, like, something that flies, I'm good. Like, just keep it over there. I remember early in our marriage, we had been married, what, like, Three, maybe three weeks, if that. All right, we're inside the apartment, and uh, there was a moth. I don't do flying insects. I'm just saying, that's, that's not me. She's got the flying insects. I will take care of the snakes. I will take care of the spiders. She gets to do the, the things that fly, the things with wings. And, you know, those little demon critters that are there. So this wasp comes inside, we're swatting at it, and the curtain rod came down. And it wasn't just that it had fallen, it had broken. All right? And so Justine and I were, you know, looking at each other, and we're just thinking, all right, we've got to change our strategy up here. And we knew from experience when we were outside and there was a wasp, you get a water hose, you hose it down, it gets wet enough, you stomp it into the ground like the devil, and it dies. So in our brilliance, we open the door, we go out, every hose you know, that you have at your house is always kinked, so we're over here un- unknotting this, this hose and the door is open and we're letting in more wasps. And we get inside and we realize there's more. There's more than just one water hose will do. So we go to the backyard and get the other one and it's coming in the back door. All right, now we've got two water hoses and we're like, these wasps have met their match. They're going down. All right, so we start hosing these wasps down and killing them. And uh, do you know how much water comes out of a water hose? When you're outside, it doesn't seem like that much. But when your couch is saturated with water, then you learn it's actually more than you had previously thought. And that's how much water was, like our couch was soaked. And we're thinking to ourselves, like, it's the heat of the day. 
Uh, this couch is heavy. Like, the couch was already heavy. And remember, that little picture wasn't going to be carrying any couch by himself or with his sister, especially whenever it's waterlogged. So we're like, let's grab the towels. Every towel in the house. We're going to grab them all, use it. We'll soak it up. It'll be fine. There weren't enough towels on planet Earth that day to soak up the amount of water that was in that couch. So um, we, we left it. And we're like, you know, it's, it, it might be dry enough. The, the curtain, that's probably going to be what mom sees. And, uh, and, and it's going to be fine. It is what it is. So mom comes home. She sees the curtain rod. And that's the thing that we focus on the most is the curtain rod. And she literally sticks her knee on the couch to reach up to where the curtain rod is. And her knee gets soaked. We were caught. We were caught. And I know you want to know how this story ends. And I hate whenever TV shows give us like one of those to be continued. But we're going to put a little pause in that. All right. We were caught. In 2 Samuel, David found himself in a wildly different situation, but also similar in that he was caught. All right. If if you're familiar with chapter 11, it's where he has his affair with Bathsheba, and then he sends Uriah into battle to kill him so that way he can snake his wife. And, uh, and he, he steals his wife, keeps her, and he thinks that it's a, a big secret what happened. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it says, So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that lamb and it grew up with his children and ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious, all right? So he's heard this story, and he's like, I'm angry. This is a horrible story. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you're that man. You're that man, David. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you, King of Israel, and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. If that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword. Because you've despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own, this is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. 
Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah, and David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. And then it says, on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him his child is dead? And when David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is this child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He's dead. And that would be devastating to hear. But David got up from the ground. He wiped him or he washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and he went to the tabernacle, worshiped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. And his advisors were amazed, as I'm sure some of you guys would be amazed in that moment. We don't understand you. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat, but now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. And David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back to, again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her, and she became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. And the Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. And ultimately, um, what you know from this story is that David made a huge mistake. He was caught in this mistake. God sent someone to him to let him know, hey, you've been found out because I am the Lord. I see all things. You can't hide this from me. So now we must deal with the sin issue that's at heart. And he's facing the consequence of that decision. And David finds himself in a moment where he needs repentance. He needs redemption. And he needs to be made right with the Lord. And the Lord um, has provided a roadmap for him. And here's the thing. The roadmap for David might not look exactly like your specific roadmap, but the principles for the road to repentance are all the exact same. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that there aren't moments that in my own life I need repentance. But when I do, the formula, the roadmap, it looks the same. And so today... We're going to take a look at some things that we can learn from David's road to repentance. And the first thing that we can learn is repentance requires intervention. Now, when, when we call ourselves God's people um, and, and we call ourselves a child of God, when we give our life to the Lord and we allow him to be our savior, um, he gives us this thing called the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's it's the thing that convicts us of sin. It's the thing that prompts us to do good. It's the thing that helps us align ourselves with God's will for our life. 
And there are moments where that Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin. And because we are stubborn human beings, sometimes we ignore that, that conviction from the Holy Spirit. And that's where He gives us the Bible, God's Word. And the Bible is our instruction manual for living, right? If it's our instruction manual for living, it's what tells us what it is that we should do and what it is that we shouldn't do. It's, through, it's what tells us why it is that we should do what we should do and why it is that we shouldn't do what we should not do. It's also what tells us about God's love for our lives and how much He loves us. And it's this wonderful story, but it's also this instruction manual for how we can live our lives in the best way, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And then sometimes it requires the Nathans. Sometimes it requires God sending people, trusted advisors in our life, people that we look up to, people that, that God uses to hold our lives accountable to speak into our lives. And I think God literally lays this out whenever he says, David, you've abandoned what the word of the Lord has said. You've denied your own convictions and then he sends Nathan. He sends Nathan to be that trusted advisor to intervene. And I think sometimes in our lives, or most of the time in our lives, there is this intervention moment that happens. We make a mistake, the Holy Spirit convicts us. If we ignore that, there's God's word that is plain and easy for us to understand if we'll just read it. I mean, let's, let's be real, we got to read it to know what it says. If we don't read it, then we don't know what it says, and therefore, how can it instruct us in our lives? So we've got to read God's Word. We've got to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, but if that fails, then He does drastic things, and He sends people. People to show us the error of our ways. People to help us understand that there is a better way that we can live. So God did all of that for, for David, and then that incited something for David. David hears this story from Nathan. And David becomes to, comes to a point of disgust with him. He's like, I'm disgusted by this story. This man has done terrible things, evil things. And he must pay justice. And when Nathan helps him to understand, David, this is you that I'm talking about. David comes to this point of confession, and he confesses, and there's public confession that you see here in this moment where he tells Nathan, yes, I've sinned, but then there's also the private confession that happens, and there's actually this wonderful passage. It's in Psalm 51, and it's actually David's confession moment that's in response to this situation. You're like, Addison, how do you know that this is that specific moment? It says it in the Bible. Literally, the title of it is uh, when David uh, had his affair with Bathsheba. <laughs> and it's literally what the title of that section says. And that passage says, Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you and you alone I've sinned. And I've done what's evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the very, mo very moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom 
even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't let me keep looking at my sin. Remove my stain and guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. And I think that this is for David, a wonderful moment that brings him back to this heart of repentance. He does three things here that I think are really important for us when we are repenting. First, there's a, conv- a confession. He admits that what he did was wrong. He admits that there was rebellion and that it was not okay. The second thing that he does is he admits that he has a need for a savior. Admitting that you need someone to save you from that sin and transform your life is a pivotal moment for repentance and for redemption. If we can't get to the point where we say, God, I am broken, I need you, then we're just going to keep going back to the same thing that is the reason why we need repentance in the first place. But the reality is, is I do need God. And I need him to not just come in and save me from my sins so that way I can go to heaven to be with him. I need him to save me from my sins so that I can constantly be right with him. So that I can be a testimony to other of God's grace in my life. So that I can show to him that loyalty is a two-way street and I am loyal to him in the same way that he is loyal to me. So that I can show him that I love him so much in the same way that he has shown that love for me. I think that 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 moment where I say, I need you, God, I need a Savior, says that I can't do this on my own and that you're worthy of being the Savior that I need. And then he admits this desire to be made right with God. And for us, the, the whole reason that we follow the Lord is that way we can be in a relationship with Him. The whole reason we're in a relationship with God is so that way we can be with Him for eternity, to be in His presence. When we spend time in worship, that is inviting the presence of the Lord into our life. But if I have huge sin that's in my life, you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to spend time in God's presence. I don't want to be convicted of that sin. Repentance brings us to this moment where where we have decided God, I don't just need you to be my savior. I want to be with you. I don't need you to just forgive me of my sin. I want to constantly be with you. And I don't don't think that these words are words that David took lightly. You got to think his son is dying And instead of being in the room with him, he is on his face repenting. Instead of being with his wife, he is repenting. Instead of sitting there and being served and eating wonderful food, he is on his face repenting. Because he knows he needs a Savior and he wants to be with God. The, the third lesson that we can learn from David is that repentance doesn't guarantee mercy. And this is a hard one for us to swallow. I feel like a lot of times uh, we put God in this box and we say, God, I am repenting of you. Now you get to make everything right. 
God, I am repenting to you. Now you get to save me from the consequence of my sin. But that's not the way that it works. Now, y'all do understand the difference between mercy and grace, right? I know our students do. I talk about it all the time. But just in case y'all don't, here in the room, mercy uh, is when you deserve a punishment, but you're saved from it. So an example, we destroyed a vacuum cleaner trying to suck out the water that was in our couch. Yeah, so I, I left that part out of the story. I totally forgot about it. But we destroyed a vacuum cleaner. It wasn't like a shop vac that was meant to, you know, suck water out from a couch. When the towels weren't good enough, we grabbed a vacuum that has the bags and we destroyed the filter that was inside of it and destroyed that vacuum cleaner. Now, mercy, an example of mercy would be my mom not making us have more chores to do. But we had more chores to do. An example of mercy would have been the vacuum cleaners magically fixed. That's, that's not how it works. It's not I confess my sin and suddenly there's no consequence. It's not I confess to the Lord and, and suddenly everything is okay. Now it will be okay. At the end of the day, it will be all right because I am with the Lord. At the end of the day, it's okay because I get to be in His presence. And if I truly am desperate for a Savior, then He is all I need, right? I don't need the vacuum cleaner except, you know, to do my chores. So repentance doesn't guarantee mercy, but repentance does guarantee grace. And grace is something that you don't deserve. It's a blessing that you didn't earn, but you receive it anyway. Okay, so an example would be if my mom had let us keep receiving our allowance. <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't get that amount of grace. Her words were, I get to let you live. Grace for us is God lets us live. We get to live. We don't get to just be with Him. We get to have life. Being restored and being redeemed isn't just about there not being consequence and having blessing. Romans says, I have sinned. And the wage of sin, what I've earned from sin, is death. But God's gift of grace is eternal life. And that is what grace looks like. Grace is Jesus' death on the cross. I'm going to invite Angela to come up and, and play for me uh, while I close I know that all of this might seem kind of silly when we're looking at, you know, I let wasps in a house and destroyed a curtain rod and destroyed a couch and destroyed a vacuum cleaner, but grace. But for us that are in this room, we've done much worse than that. We've done worse than destroying 
a couch. We've destroyed relationships. We've destroyed marriages. We've destroyed our kids. We've destroyed culture. We've destroyed our witness. And all God wants from us is that confession, the idea that we realize we need a Savior and a desire to be made right with Him. And what He gives us is grace. So over the last couple of weeks and for the next couple of more weeks, um, we've been doing communion as a family, but we've also been doing communion as a church. And um, if you're here today and you don't have one of those little communion cups with you, would you just raise your hand? We've got some ushers that are around the room. Um, Rob, I, I admit I don't have one. When you, would you mind bringing one to me, sir? Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. So communion um, for us is, it's not just a small snack. It's much more. It's remembering the moment of grace. It's remembering that we need to go through this process of repentance. It's remembering this is sometimes that intervention that we need to remember that we're in this journey. And we've made mistakes and we desperately need a Savior because we want to be made right with Him. We want to be in His presence. And I'd like for all of you to bow your heads for a moment. And if you're here in the room um, and you're saying, Addison, I need some of that grace. I want some of that grace. I want you to know that that grace can be made available to you. And here's how it looks. You say, God, I admit that I've made mistakes. Mistakes that are contrary to what the Holy Spirit has convicted me. Mistakes that are contrary to what the Word of God says. My instruction manual for how I'm living, I'm being disobedient. And I confess that to you. And I need you to be my Savior because I want to be with you. And if you're here in this room and you say, Addison, I need that grace, I want you in your own little way and do it quietly under your breath, out loud, however you feel comfortable. I want you to pray a prayer that sounds something like that. God, I confess I need you as my Savior. I want to be with you.
when we look at being redeemed by God and we say that, Lord, we have sinned and we need you to save us and we want to be with you forever. I think our human desire oftentimes is to finish that with what can I do to make it right? I've made a mistake, I've sinned, I need a savior, I want to be with you, what can I do to make it right? And I know that, you know, person to person, there are ways that, that we can make ourselves right with another person in that process of restoration. And up until the New Testament, when God's people had sinned, what was offered, what God asked, was for a prized, unblemished calf or cow or sheep or goat, ram, some kind of cattle. Prized and unblemished. It was representative to cover the sins of the people. It was also kind of foreshadowing. Not kind of, it was foreshadowing. Because in the New Testament, Jesus became that prized, unblemished lamb. That perfect, spotless sacrifice. And today you're probably here saying, God, I've made mistakes. I want to be made right with you. How can I do it? And he says, you can't but I can, and I've already done it. And this communion is remembering that moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's talking to the church of Corinth, and he says, For I pass on to you what I have received from the Lord himself on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks for it. And he broke it in pieces, and says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd like for everybody to take that little wafer. And let's pray over it. Lord, we know that this is your body that was broken for us. We know that it's in this moment that your body was broken for us, that we received healing, that, that we received uh, grace in, in some form, but also, Lord, that we received uh, some gifts from you. We received healing. We received purpose. We received hope. And Lord, we don't take it for granted. We're thankful for the ways in which you have offered sacrifice for us so that we could be made whole. And we give you thanks for it. Take the bread. We can open that communion cup, the juice part. And it says, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. We talk about that old covenant where the people had to bring a sacrifice. And in this new covenant, covenant Jesus 
was that sacrifice, spilling his blood for you and for me. And he says, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you that we do have this, this moment of repentance and redemption. We recognize the need for a Savior. We recognize that we need to be made whole again, that we need to be with you because we love you. And we're grateful. We don't take for granted the price that you paid for us and the blood that you shed for us and how significant it is because it's what makes us new. It's what makes us whole and it's what keeps us in relationship with you. So Lord, thank you. All right, you can drink the cup. So something that David did that I thought was crazy was after the moment where justice had been served, after the moment that he had come, laid on his face, gone through the process of repentance, said, maybe the Lord will spare me, have grace and spare this child, and he didn't. David got up, he cleaned himself and then he went and worshipped. I can't think of a better way for us to end this moment than to worship him. And I think the song that Angela is playing, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is grace, 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 God's grace, grace, that will pardon and cleanse within grace grace God's grace grace that is greater than all our sins sing that again grace God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's Thanks, thanks for stepping in 
when there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, you made a way. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for making it right. Thank you for doing what only you can do. And for sending your Son for us so that we can have a relationship with you and be with you forever. We don't take it for granted. Lord, I pray for the people that are here this morning, that you would bless them as they go out into the, to their workplace, that you would bless our students and their schools, our teachers. I pray that your grace would be with them, that it would shine upon them, and that you would give them peace and joy now and forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, I love you guys, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Hope you all have an awesome Hello, this is Greg Sanders, pastor of the Assembly here in Cabot. I want to say thanks for listening today. If you are ever in the Cabot area, we'd love to have you join us for a service. For service times, check out our webpage at theassemblycabot.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a great day, and God bless.